we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 20 from the book of Joshua. The new generations in the land, they're there. It's their chance. It's their opportunity. The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there. And they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city in his own house to the city from which he fled. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah, and on the other side of the Jordan, by the Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezir in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan, which is from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. This is one of those laws that we put under the category of civil law. It's a law designed to be a blessing to the society and the civility of the people. You can't just have anarchy and vigilantes paying out revenge and retribution randomly. God definitely has a a plan for law and order. And in the promised land with the nation of Israel, they were to have law and order and laws of protected people. In any society, in any large gathering of people, the more people you get in a large city, the more you can have murder and other thefts, fraudulent things, manslaughter, car accidents. You're just going to have all kinds of different things happen. People die every day, right? Hundreds of thousands of people die every day on this planet. Things go wrong, and people die by accident. They die in accidents at work. They die in accidents at home. They fall from ladders. They fall from trees. They get injured in the workplace, and, and they die. Things happen. This is a a reality of humanity and the human experience in any culture, in any society. And so for the Jewish nation, God had this built-in safety net of the cities for the manslayer. So there's three cities on the west side of Israel, the Jordan River, and there are three cities on the east side where the two and a half tribes were, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh were on that side. So within a certain region, if you accidentally killed someone, You could go somewhere to the nearest city and take refuge, present your case and take refuge, and you could live there. So it'd be sort of like being under house arrest within the city limits of sort, but you could live your life there. Your family could come visit there. You could actually relocate your family there. It would seem there's nothing that forbids that. But there'd be a consequence. So there's a consequence for you because you, by accident, killed somebody. Blood was shed. And we understand in the book of Genesis where blood is shed, Things happen in God's economy. We also see that there's a restraint against people taking vengeance on those people. So you couldn't just go track someone down. You get to the city and go, like, hey, they, 
they did this, they backed up their cow and hit, hit my wife and she died. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that could cause tremendous emotional grief. But God set up the laws to be this way. So the elders of the city, they couldn't really make their own laws along the way. God designed this law to protect these people from a greater punishment than what already happened to them. And it was to be heard by an assembly, the case, but they weren't to be executed for manslaughter. That's not that, that wasn't to happen. And then the other thing tied to this, because if someone kills someone accidentally and then someone goes out there and kills them in revenge, that, that would be murder. See, manslaughter is death by accident. But you premeditate how you're going to plan and plot to kill someone, that is murder. So that's an escalation of the crime on the society and how it affects everybody. So when we talk about in the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that actually is really restraint. So if this person knocks out your tooth, you knock out their tooth. But we're never satisfied with that. We want to knock out two teeth, right? That's human nature. So even in that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, there's a restraint against an escalation of lawlessness and retaliation. Reading about the French-Indian War with the colonies, the British, and then reading about the colonial war that dragged on, it's very interesting how actually for centuries there was the Indian Wars against the settlers, the early colonialists from the 1600s into the 1700s. That bad blood just perpetuated generation after generation, particularly upstate New York, Vermont, you know, going toward Kentucky and all that area. And then during the French-Indian War, the French and the Indian tribes, they fought against the British. They had some tribes working with them. And these are generations of retaliation. You kind of think like Israel and the Palestinians or the Arab nations, if you will. And it just be this perpetual cycle. And even during the Revolutionary War, like in 19, or excuse me, 1779, one of the main campaigns of that year of the war where Washington just sent raiders out to go harass all the Indian tribes along the New York border just to do something to cause disruptions for the British, the tribes aligned with them. But he knew they would do this and loot and burn and do this stuff, but then the tribes would come right back and do it as soon as no one was around to protect the other areas. That's human nature. You just keep going at it and keep going at it until someone stops it. Someone has to let it go. Or it just perpetuates and never stops. It's human nature. So this is a safety net by God to prevent Israel from just going and going and going and never stopping the cycle of violence. Manslaughter is horrible, but it wasn't premeditated. Murder is premeditated. So you get manslaughter, then you get murder, now you get, okay, well, my dad killed your relative by accident, but you killed my mother on purpose, now I'm going to come kill you. And it just escalates. That's not the way of the cross or the kingdom. And that's why God has it set up this way that the cycle of violence would stop, even accidental violence. He prevents it from escalating. And we see the key element in all this is that the person who committed manslaughter was to live in that city of refuge until the high priest died. Now, the high priest, we know Aaron was the first high priest, followed by Eliezer and then Phineas. We'll get Phineas later tonight in the text. And the high priest was one person, and we know the high priest had that position where he went before the Lord personally on behalf of the people. And we know on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would go into the most holy place on behalf of the people. And they're always from the tribe of Kohathites, the sub-tribe of you know, Levites, and then the Merarites, Gershonites, and the Kohathites. So the high priest always came from a Kohathite, but not just a Kohathite, from the house of Aaron. 
So for all those years, they came that way. But by the time Christ came, it was a political position, not a spiritual one. So there's two high priests, actually. But early on, for centuries, the high priests, and they would go in on Yom Kippur. They had the two goats, right, the scapegoat. They'd, they'd sacrifice the one goat, go into the holy place only once a year where God's presence was, sprinkle the blood for the sins of the people. Then he'd come out and he would lay his hands. Well, he'd go in and confess his own sins for his own sins and for the sins of the people. Then he would confess the sins of the people on the other goat, the other scapegoat, and then they release that scapegoat in the wilderness never to be seen again, which really represents what it says, so far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed our sins from us. That's what the scapegoat really represents. But the high priest did that with the scapegoat. That's what the high priest did. So on Yom Kippur, one goat dies, the blood for the high priest and his sins, the blood for the people, then the confession of the other scapegoat released, and that's what happened on the most holy day of the year for the Jews, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But those are high priests according to the Levitical priesthood in the house of Aaron. We know that Jesus is our great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This, of course, is this text in context from the book of Hebrews. That Jesus from the tribe of Judah, not a Levite, but we're told he's our high priest. And he died once for us. So unlike the high priest who had his own sins of the tribe of Levite, who confessed his sins and there was a scapegoat, Jesus is the one without sin, of course. And we're told as our high priest, he enters the holiest of holies. He goes into the presence of the Father for us and ever is at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. So Aaron or Eleazar or Phineas and subsequent high priests will go in once a year for their own sins, blood, and for the sins of the people only once a year. But Jesus has once and for all entered into heaven to the right hand of the Father from where he came and he's our high priest and he's sinless. So the death of our high priest, Jesus on the cross, delivers us from the guilt of our sin and our bondage. I just read in my own devotion this morning in 1 John chapter 3 that Jesus came to take away our sins and to defeat the devil. And the big third one is to defeat the grave. So Jesus is our high priest because we're all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all know we're sin, sinners here by nature. Christ died for our sins and he rose from the grave for our justification and he gives us eternal life through faith in him as a substitution in our place. So not just our savior, but our high priest. So the death of our high priest, so the death of the high priest of Aaron or Eleazar or Phineas can't save us. But the death of our high priest, Jesus Christ, says, now the high priest for them released them from the city of refuge and let them be restored to their life. Time, space, and matter, all of it. You're in bondage in time, space, and matter because you killed someone accidentally. The high priest from the house of Aaron, he dies. That's a, a, a key note on the calendar, a key event on the calendar when he died. And now you can go home. The high priest died. You go home. And in a sense, you've paid your debt to society, just like when someone's served you know, three years for manslaughter or 12 years for manslaughter, depending on what, what it looked like. When you've paid your debt to society, you're released. Same way, their high priest would die. The guilty of manslaughter is released. They can go home and rebuild their life, coming back from a great tragedy. This all speaks to us what Christ does for us. Because Christ is our great high priest. We're in bondage, not to manslaughter, but to a capital punishment and death sentence because we're sinners, and the wage of sin is death. 
That's why Christ had to die capital punishment for us on the cross, because that is the punishment for capital crime, the cross. He didn't do time three months in the Galilean jail for being a thief. He did the cross, which is capital punishment. That's what Barabbas would have had for being a murderer and an insurrectionist. Barabbas is released, much like symbolic of us, and Christ goes to the cross instead of Barabbas. Jesus is our great high priest, and his death is our freedom. So aren't you glad you don't have to live in a city of refuge? Aren't you glad? Like, don't you, aren't you kind of happy you got the freedom? Like, well, today we have the freedom. You can go here, there, or somewhere else. And aren't you glad you have that? You want to take a road trip to Arizona? You can go do it. Like, let's go to Utah. Let's go to Zion for Timmy's wedding, right? Let's go do it. And you can do these things. But if you accidentally killed someone in this situation, you lost that freedom. There was a heavy consequence. And you'd have time to think about it in the city of the manslayer, but then you'd be released from the city of refuge for the manslayer. There would be something that spoke to you when the high priest died that his death connected with your freedom, and that speaks to us of Christ. So praise the Lord. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. Our great high priest, Hebrews tells us, that we come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need, and he ever lives and intercedes for us, and he's always availed to us. And he doesn't die many times over and over for our sins of today, tomorrow, and yesterday. He died once for all. Isn't that the glorious gospel? Good news. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We don't live in a city of refuge for whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And we have freedom in Christ. So praise the Lord. He's our great high priest. Now we read on. There's the gospel. I mean, chapter 20, the city of refuge is the gospel. Chapter 21 now, we read about the Levites. Everyone else got their property. The Levites don't get a region. They get portions of each region. So let's read about this. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock. So the children of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance at the command of the Lord these cities and their common lands. Now the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites, And the children of Aaron the priest, who were of the Levites, had 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah, and from the tribe of Simeon, and from the tribe of Benjamin. The rest of the children of Koath had 10 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the children of Gershon had 13 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, from the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the children of Merari, according to their families, had 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun. And the children of Israel gave these cities with their common lands by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. So this is our introduction to the distribution of the lands for the families and their livestock for the Levites. So again, Israel, Jacob is the head of the, well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, and then Levites are set apart, so now that's 11. Then Joseph is subdivided, Manasseh and Ephraim, that's now 12, through the grandchildren, 12, and even 12, and 1, the Levites. So the 12 tribes have gotten their share, and now the Levites are going to be spread out. And we talked about this when we are going through Leviticus and Numbers, that each tribe had a region. We thought it was interesting, right? Simeon was in the middle of Judah. We saw that last week. It's like, wow, so random. Simeon just... 
completely in the middle of Judah, but each tribe had their region, an entire region. So it'd be like Riverside County, Imperial County, Orange County, San Bernardino County cut in half, that sort of a thing. They had their regions. And so a group of people would be descendants of that tribe in that region. But the Levites weren't that way, and this was really important because, again, we're reminded the Levites were to be the teachers of the law and the keeper of the, the religious law because the law was moral, the Ten Commandments, and your interactions with God toward your neighbor, civil, law, community, like we just talked about, the city for the refuge and the manslayer, and then religious. So the priests were to know the word of God. So the priests, the Levites, were like pastors. So we're with Naphtali in the north, and we have a question at the dinner table about something in the law with Leviticus, with the two birds, and one flies away, and one has the blood on them, and the other one's killed. Like, whatever does that mean? You go knock on your neighbor's door, the Levite, who lives in the common lands of your community, and you say, Hey, shalom, shalom. Oh, we're wondering about that bird thing. Why two birds and why does one fly away? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sit down. Let us break bread and talk about it. Like you had a Levite in your region, like you were going to go talk to the pastor. Like when they planted the, the missions with Father Juniper Sierra, with the missions that the idea was every 30 miles, you had someone that could give you counsel concerning the things of God. That's the idea that someone is nearby that can give you insight and spiritual direction. So God built in within the distribution of the land by the lot. They're all where they're supposed to be, no accidents. And then now he's dispersing these Levites in their three subdivisions, Kohathites, Merarites, and Gershonites. But remember, at the Kohathites, there's even another subdivision because it's the house of Aaron and the high priest. And we saw that even now in these first few verses So the 12 tribes, we we read all 12 tribes are involved with giving some of their land to the Levites because the Levites are like salt and light, like the church. They're spread out in every region to have an influence in their community and in their place. They're meant to be a spiritual influence and spiritual leaders in their community, much like a local church. And that's the way God designed it. And it's beautiful and it's awesome. But each of these tribes in their regions had to give up some of their land to the Levites to provide for them. Now we read on how this division takes place in a greater detail. Verse 9. So they gave from the tribe of the children of Judah and from the tribe of the children of Simeon these cities which are designated by name, which were for the children of Aaron, one of the families of the Kohathites, who were of the children of Levi. For the lot was theirs first. And they gave them Kirjath Arba. Arba was the father of Anak, which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah, with the common land surrounding it. But the fields of the city and his village they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephna, as his possession. Because, of course, we know Caleb fought the battle to earn it. God gave it to him. He's an exception. It's like he's Caleb's grandfather clause. No one messes with Caleb's inheritance. He waited 45 years to get that. He won that. He earned that. No, that's even the Levites don't get, yeah, one Levite to another Levite. Hey, how come we don't get Caleb's land? Are you even asking me that question? You don't mess with Caleb. See that guy at 86? Man. He's a bad dude. God gave it to him. He earned it. That's his land. No one touches Caleb's land. Verse 13. Thus the children of Aaron the high priest, they gave Hebron, which is the common land, a city for, of refuge for the slayer, Libnah with its common land, Jatir with its common land, Eshtemoah with its common land, Holon with its common land, Debir with its common land, Ayan with its common land, Jutah with its common land, Beshemesh with its common land, nine cities from those two tribes. So we see here now, again, what we're, we're seeing here is that the Kohathites, or the house of Aaron, that part of the Kohathites, they're getting land from Judah and Simeon. 
from that portion of the 12 tribes in Israel. Verse 17. And from the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its common land, Geba with its common land, Anathoth with its common land, Ammon with its common land, four cities, all the cities of the children of Aaron the priests were 13 cities with their common lands. So that last portion coming from Benjamin. They're pulling from Benjamin, Judah, and Simeon for their part of the inheritance. Verse 20. And the families of the children of Kohath, the Levites, so that's the rest of the Kohathites that aren't of the high priest family of, of Aaron, these Levites, the rest of the children of Kohath, even they had the cities of their lot from the tribe of Ephraim, for they gave them Shechem with its common land, the mountains of Ephraim, a city of refuge for the slayer, Gezer with its common land, Kibzion with its common land, Beth Horon with its common land, four cities, and from the tribe of Dan, El Ike with its common land, Gibbethon with its common land, Azolon with its common land, Gath Rimnon with its common land, four cities, and from the half tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with its common land, Gath Rimnon with its common land, two cities, all the ten cities with their common lands, were for the rest of the families of the children of the Kohathites. So now the rest of these Kohathites, they're pulling their properties from Ephraim, Dan, and the half tribe of Manasseh. They're all pitching in. Verse 27. So now we're on another segment of the Levites, the house of Gershon. Also to the children of Gershon, of the families of the Levites from the other half tribe of Manasseh, they gave Golan and Bashan with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer. Beth Eshterah with its common land, two cities and from the tribe of Ishkar. Kishion with its common land, Debiroth with its common land, Jarmuth with its common land, and Ganim with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Asher, Mishal with its common land, Abdon with its common land, Helkoth with its common land, Rehob with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh in Galilee with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer, Hamath Dor with its common land, Kartan with its common land, three cities. All the cities of the Gershonites, according to their families, were 13 cities with their common lands. So now this other portion of the Levites, so the Kohathites got theirs. Aaron, a subdivision of the Kohathites in his household got theirs. Now the Gershonites get theirs, and they're pulling from the tribe, the other half tribe of Manasseh, Iskar, uh, Asher, and Naphtali for their properties. Which leaves us finally the Marites in verse 34. And to the families of the children of Mari, the rest of the Levites from the tribe of Zebulun, Jokneum with its common land, Kartal with its common land, Dimna with its common land, Nahala with its common land, four cities. From the tribe of Reuben, Bezer with its common land, Jahaz with its common land, Kadamoth with its common land, Mephoth with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Gad, Ramoth, and Gilead, which with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer, Mahanam with its common land, Heshbon with its common land, and Jazer with its common land, four cities in all. So all the cities from the children of Morari, according to their families, the rest of the families of the Levites, were by their lot 12 cities. All the cities of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were 48 cities with their common lands. Every one of these cities had its common land surrounding, thus were all these cities. So these subdivisions, technically four, if you consider that Aaron and his house are separated from the rest of the Kohathites, 48 cities. I talked about this at the very end of last week's study, where Joshua went last. That's what a leader does, goes last. We talked about being the captain on a ship. If you're the captain on the ship, anyone's going down that ship, you're going down that ship with them. The captain only leaves the ship when everyone else gets off the ship. That's just, that's just a rule of maritime that pretty much is in play to this day. It's dishonorable to abandon your ship. Remember that guy ran that cruise ship up on the rocks in Greece and he got off the ship? Dishonor for the rest of his life. 
you, you, it's just one of those things. You take, the, you take the ownership of a ship in World War II or any other war in times past, that ship's going down, you're the last one. That dreadnought, you're the last one getting off that battleship or you go down with the ship. And Joshua went last. The one who could have claimed to go first went last. And great leadership thinks of others and puts them first. And here, too, we see the Levites, they're actually really last behind Joshua. So often when you serve the Lord, you're last. Because the greatest in the kingdom is last. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The greatest in the kingdom of God is to be the servant of all. That's what Jesus said when John and James were arguing over greatness. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The kings of the world, they lord it over one another. That's what they do, but not so with you in the kingdom. And really, when you step up and step forward in ministry, you're under a death sentence. A spiritual death sentence of your pride and your self-will and all your little opinions are going to be crucified by the Holy Spirit as you serve the Lord and serve his people. You can always be the last one. Everyone else comes before you. The hireling flees, but the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the way it works in the kingdom. The Lord is our inheritance, is what God said to the Levites, that the Lord was their inheritance. They didn't get large territories. They got certain areas, 48 cities, and some common land. They were never going to be land barons. They are going to have just enough land for a few cattle or sheep and goats, whatever, to be provided for. But theirs really was about the eternal kingdom and spiritual things to lead the people. And they went last, and they had to trust in the Lord. They had to trust in the Lord as they watched all these other people who were ambitious or prideful or arrogant and all these things. They had to trust in the Lord as they watched all that land be distributed, and there they are last. Joshua gets his dream retirement territory, and then they have to go last and trust that these 12 tribes are going to do what they're supposed to do, that Joshua will close the deal now that he's retired, and that it'll all work out the way it's supposed to. That would have been hard to be a Levite man with your Levite wife and your Levite children. It would have been hard to be the children of the Levites to see everyone else, you know, Benny's family getting property over here with the vineyards, and you're not guaranteed anything, and everyone got everything before you went. But just remember, we're a priesthood to the Lord, that we're a holy priesthood, and we're the kingdom. And so often for us as believers in Christ, we go last. And we have to esteem others more important than ourselves. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself even to the point of death, yet being equal to God. And we, that's, that's hard. When I first went to ministry, I thought, oh, we're going to lead people, we're going to inspire people. No, you're going to die, and they're going to be inspired when they watch you get pummeled. That's going to be their inspiration. You getting beat down and coming back for more with the Holy Spirit. That's how that's going to work. That's just the way it is. But it's a narrow gate. We're going to see that on Saturday. Wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction. Anyone can inherit all of Judah. Just too much anyways, right? Got to give some to Simeon. It's more than you can even handle. It's more wealth than you know what to do with, Judah. Got to give some of that to Simeon. To whom, to whom much is given, much is entrusted. And for the body of Christ in our journey... It's not so much about what we can attain, but what we can release. That's really the key. For he who loves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. So the Levites here going last, I know what this is like, because so often in ministry, 
Well, for example, in Virginia, early 90s, we had the box on the back uh, for offerings, and we'd have to pay everything until we paid us. And if there was nothing left, there was nothing left, and you go give plasma twice a week. Like, if there's something, then you got something. If there's nothing, you got nothing. When we get to Vermont, there's nothing. So go pick up dirty dishes and pray for money in the mail, because that's your best shot right now. That's just the way it worked. You got to cover this, you got to cover that, you got to cover this, you got to cover that. I think of Hector planning the church in Long Beach those years ago. It's like, you got to pay the school rent, you got to pay for this, you got to pay for that, you got to pay for this. And if there's anything left, then that's what you can pull from. That's what church planning is, that's what ministry is. Trusting in God and others go first. You know, when you're guest speaking, when I did all that guest speaking, I could never put a price tag on the Word of God, so I could never tell someone an honorarium. And sometimes no one, we'd get no honorarium. And I have to work through that between me and the Lord a whole day of my life doing something for some big promoter from Tennessee. He's making a bunch of money and he stiffs me. And I got to let that go. And you say, well, that's that. Note to self, when they call next year, say no. That's just the way it is. But it's hard. When we did all the worship generation events, 400 churches in four and a half years, we never had a set honorarium. And I was talking with someone a week ago about this. More often than not, the smallest churches are the most generous churches, and the biggest churches will be the least appreciative and the least generous. It's almost science. I say almost science because there's some big churches that are generous, but you could almost go 9 out of 10 that way. The Levites went absolutely dead last. And what was their role in society? The Lord was their inheritance. And because the Lord was their inheritance, they went last. Everyone, even Joshua, went before them. And if you're a child of a Levite and you're like the Levite, you're like, oh man, you're 12 years old going like, why are you born in this Levite family? You know, Simon's over there in the house of Benjamin. I mean, his dad's, a, his dad's playing Monopoly with all this tribe's property, man. I can just rolling large over there, man. I got nothing. It'd be so easy to think that way. That's why you come up with terms like missionary kids, MKs, PKs, preacher's kids. Because it's so often there's so much sacrifice you make to serve the body of Christ. You should never sacrifice your children on the altar. That's a big mistake that God never called us to do. But still, there's just things that you do. So I bring all this up just to say, you know what? Sometimes you just got to let everyone else go first. Obviously, God gives us wisdom, you know, what battles to fight, what things to hold your ground on. But the Levites went last. And they had the least. But really, because the Lord is an inheritance, what did they have? They had the most. Their job was to wake up and study the scriptures. Their job was to wake up and pray for their neighbors and pray for the nation. What a privilege. It's a blessed privilege that we have to serve Jesus Christ and to lose our life for Christ like a Levite and to find our life in Christ like a Levite. We should never despise service to the Lord and allow any resentment to come in because we feel like others have been taken care of. It's important to have that vision for our lives and for those who make those sacrifices. In fact, one of my personal goals in the next 20 years of my life, if I live to see 80, is to do more than I can to help other pastors in ministry build wealth when they had no plan for their retirements. And God has brought really smart people to this church and into my life who make millions and millions of dollars and are super smart with real estate, investments, annuities, stocks, bonds, 
all that kind of stuff. And so I'm able to take the information you guys have learned from your life skills, process it and share it with other people who are 10, 15 years behind me that have nothing. And in some cases opted out of social security because they were counseled to do so, which was bad counsel. So I look at people like that and I say, well, God's going to take care of them. And I know God's going to take care of them because the greatest legacy is passing on faith to your children. But I definitely personally, and with our ministry here, we want to continue to help people who've given everything in the prime of their life, like the priesthood, age 30 to 50, and now they're past 50 or knocking on 50, and they've got nothing to show for it. The hardest landing for many people is coming back from the mission field with no retirement benefit, no medical benefits, and no plan in place at all for your children. It's not easy being a Levite, but it's worth it being a Levite. So whatever God calls you to let go as a Levite, you let it go, and you let others go first, and you trust God to take care of you. Because we pick it up in verse 43, and look what we see here, and this is for the Levites, and this is for all of us. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them, and the Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Not a word failed. We say yes and amen. All of his promises are yes and amen. Not one word failed. The common denominator for every person who ever gives their life to Christ is that the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen, and not one word will ever fail. It's not going to fail me or my wife. When we're gone, our children. When they're gone, our grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren. Like, it's never going to fail. The word of God has never failed the body of Christ, and it never will fail the body of Christ. It's all truth. Jesus is the epitome of the word. He fulfills the word, and he's coming to completely fulfill the word with his coming kingdom. Not one word will fail. Everything will be exactly as it says from Genesis to Revelation. And so we, the body of Christ tonight, in spite of so many things that would seem to be against us, because there always seems to be things against the body of Christ, because the devil hates us and the kingdom of darkness is against us, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. As Elisha said to his servant, there are more than us of us than them. And we have all the promises and all these men, these men and women who connive evil against humanity for power and control and glory and wealth, they're nothing. They have nothing. Reading the Proverbs, you can't read a chapter of Proverbs and not read 10 verses about the wicked, how they come to nothing. And you read 10 to 20 verses about the righteous, how God always takes care of them and they always prevail in the end. Not one promise failed this generation, and I can assure you in Christ Jesus right now, not one promise is going to fail us. I just did last rites over someone dying yesterday. And as I prayed over them, my childhood friend's mom, and as I prayed over her, I just started crying because I remember all these memories with her and when she was younger and my friend in school growing up in Carlsbad in the 70s. And, and as I prayed this, the word of God over her in Scripture, it's like, not one promise fails. And there's a room next, there's a man across the curtain next door, and he's a former minister. And I turn on the corner, he's like, because <laughs> he knows not one word, not one word failed. God's got our back. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, those are the ones on the east side. 
And he said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I commanded you. You've not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them. Now, therefore, return and go to your tents into the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half of it, Joshua had given a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan, westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and spoke to them, saying, Hey, return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, bronze, and iron, with very much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned, and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Now we remember when they were back there in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, they fought the battles against Sihon and Og, the, the giant kings on the other side, and they chose to stay on that side. And that's their inheritance. But they were not to receive that inheritance until they crossed over to the west side and fought the battles with the nine and a half other tribes. And once the job was done, they could return to their families, their flocks, their homes on the east side of the Jordan and get on and enjoy life when it was all said and done. And give them credit. They did it, didn't they? Look at the commendation they get from Moses or Joshua. You've kept all that Moses, my servant, commanded you, and you've obeyed my voice and all that I commanded you. You know, when you're leaving a job, you've been doing a job for seven years or whatever, when you're wrapping something up that's been a major part of your life, when you're going home from a military campaign that lasted seven years, and the commander commends you and says you did the job exactly, you did your job. That's a very fulfilling thing. We should always leave something better when we left it than how we found it. Things should always be better when we've left than how we found it. And for the two and a half tribes that we're going to be living on the east side, and we've talked a lot about them in the last two years, you got to give them credit. Joshua said, you guys, you did it. You were faithful. It's like one of these. You were faithful. You finished the job. You did what you said you would do to Moses. You did what you said you'd do for me and your brethren have their lands, the Levites have their lands, I have my retirement property, now go home to your wives and your children and take all the wealth you've earned and share it with your brethren. God has been good because not one word failed. This is a very happy part of this chapter. It's good stuff, and it's very encouraging. It reminds us that a job well done is a job well done, just that. It's always nice to go out with commendation because... You didn't leave a mess behind you, but you left things better than how you found them, and you did your job. Now, you might have noticed that everything's coming out of Shiloh right now. Shiloh became that central place of government and worship because that's where the tabernacle is. So they went home from Shiloh at that point, and now they're on the east side, and now we read about these events that really are just a great misunderstanding. Verse 10, And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan River, a great and impressive altar. Now the children of Israel, that is on the west side, heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. 
And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Verse 13, then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead with ten rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel, each one with the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. And then they came to the children of Reuben and to the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you've committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, and that you've built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us from which we are not cleansed till this day? That's the whole thing with Balaam and Balak, that whole story from Numbers Although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but you must turn away this day from following the Lord. It shall be if you rebel today against the Lord that tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass and the cursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. So this is the side, the perspective that the tribes on the west side have. In their mind, they're thinking, this is like Balaam and Balak. This is like really bad with the Midianites, the plague with the little idols and the sexual morality. Or in fact, just like Achan, where he took the hidden thing, and then we went to war, 36 men died, then he and his family all died. This is a bad thing. What they're saying is, we've learned that a bad decision by one person affects more people. So your sin's going to affect us, and we don't want to be under God's wrath or curse or chastening, because we want the blessings. So what are you doing? In fact, the accusation was, what treachery is this? That's a pretty strong terminology there in verse 16. What treachery you've committed against God? For the record, we know they did not commit treachery. So this is actually a false assumption and a false accusation, which just reminds us it's really important we get the information, as much information as we need to make sure that we're seeing things right and not jumping to conclusions. We should presume the best in situations, and if we're not sure, ask questions and find out more. To come this strong in someone's face, your treachery and all this stuff, it's not appropriate. It's a misunderstanding. Verse 21. Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows, and let Israel itself know if it is rebellion or if it is indeed treachery against the Lord. Do not save us this day. If we built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord or if to offer, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. But in fact, we've done none of it. But in fact, we have done it in fear for a reason saying to our descendants, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us. You, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, you have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us in our generations after us that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifice, with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore we said that it will be when they say this is to our generations in time to come, that we may say here is a replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings or for sacrifices, but as a witness between you and us. 
Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings or sacrifices, besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. Now when Phineas the priests and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, heard the words of the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you've not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God, they spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness for the witness between us and the Lord this day, for the, that the Lord is God. So they built this altar. So let me read verse 34 again. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So the concern for the two and a half tribes on the east side is that as one generation gave way to another, the natural border, the separation of the Jordan River, would cause them to be excluded, and their children would maybe drift away, not have access to go worship the Lord in Shiloh, and then eventually in Jerusalem at the temple. That was their concern. That's a legitimate concern. They were more geographically challenged to come to the central place of worship because the nine and a half tribes could go to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, without crossing the Jordan River or needing the fords or whatever. They could have easier access. So it would require more for the two and a half tribes on this side and in time, it would be maybe easier to just drift away. When you live farther from church, it's easier not to go to church, right? You know, like, it just works that way. We understand that. But look what it says about the two and a half tribes. They said, what we've done, verse 24, we've done it in fear, for fear. So the, it's a total misunderstanding. These tribes on this side think there's treachery and they're building another altar to do the sacrifices, which is forbidden by the Lord to have any other altar than the one that would be at Shiloh, the tabernacle. So they presume the worst. But then really, these two and a half tribes presume the worst. And what are they motivated? By fear. They're afraid. They're afraid of, fear, they're afraid of the future and what it holds and not knowing much about it. So their fear causes them to do this and then causes misunderstanding and then there's an accusation of treachery. There is the mobilization for civil war. And then there's the de-escalation of all this. Everyone's kind of jumpy, huh? <laughs> it's all tribes. Everyone got their stuff. Everyone's just like, hey, let's tone it down a little bit here, people. Let's have a little less fear, a little less quick accusations. Let's all take a deep breath and just realize there's space for all 12 tribes. And no one's doing anything bad here. And let's stay in the moment and not let fear of the unknown of the future affect us in putting perceptions out there that can be misunderstood. That's what we see here. It's life, isn't it? It's life. The 12 tribes are going to always be a shaky coalition. They're always going to be a shaky coalition. Geographically, the distinction of their tribes, our country is a shaky coalition, geographically, ethnically. The colonies have always been a shaky coalition. The church is salt and light. We're a preserving element. We're a light-shining element for truth. Whatever societies do and come and go, wherever the church is, we can still always be 
a people of faith, a people of inspiration, a people of direction. And that's what's entrusted to us this night. That's our lesson from this last thing, not to jump, jump around to hasty conclusions and false accusations. Just think it through, go investigate, find out what's going on. Think the best of your brethren, hope the best of your brethren. Talk it out, work it out, walk it out, and figure it out. And that's what we learned from this last chapter.